Our New Testament passage, which is found in Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 10 through the end of the epistle. So first of all, our Old Testament reading, Psalm 111. Hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty in his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding His praise endures forever. And then our New Testament text and our text for the sermon, chapter 4, verses 10 through the end of the epistle. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come now to the end of this epistle that we've been studying. And we thank you that you inspired Paul to write it, that you have preserved it through the ages that has been handed down to us as part of the canon of Scripture. It is your infallible and authoritative word. 
and you've given it to us for our instruction and our encouragement in grace. Father, it's been our delight to study it. Now as we come to the end of it, we pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word to the hearts of your people, both our Old Testament passage, but also this reading from this text. And Father, we come now to the preaching of your word. You've set apart men by the laying on of hands that you've called and you've equipped to preach the gospel, and yet they cannot do it in their own strength, but must rely upon that grace and that gift and that power that you give through the unction of your Holy Spirit. Your servant stands before you now in need of that unction, that your gospel may be preached with both clarity and power. Open the ears of your people here to hear your word preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we come to the end of this study, and I'm always sad when I come to the last sermon in a particular series. Uh, I would like to say, this is what I'm going to be doing next time I'm here, and we're going to be getting such and such a series and we're going to take that through until the Lord calls an organizing pastor to come and be among us. But I'll be frank, I haven't given as much thought to what I'm going to do next yet. But you will know next time I come, I trust that the Lord will lead me in where we go after Philippians. I've loved this study. I love the book of Philippians. I hope you can see that. In, in the preaching of it. It's so warm. It's so personal. The relationship that Paul has with the church at, at, at Philippi. And, and we've brought that to the exposition of the whole of the epistle as we've worked our way through it. But some of these things that we, that we know about the relationship between Paul and the Philippians are actually contained here in the text we have at the end of the epistle. I've simply taken those things and brought them up front to undergird as we have worked our way through the epistle from the beginning. Um, I would remind you of Paul's circumstance. He was arrested in Jerusalem. As a Roman soldier, he appealed to, I mean, as a Roman citizen, he appealed to Caesar. Uh, he made this long, arduous journey in order to arrive in Rome. He's under house arrest there as he's awaiting the time when he will stand before Nero, and Nero will hear his appeal at that time. He doesn't know what the outcome will be. He thinks that he will be exonerated, and he thinks that he will be released, but he doesn't know that for sure. And yet his circumstances have brought him uh, in bonds. He is under house arrest as he's awaiting that appeal. And the Philippians, of course, didn't know that. As we know, it took a long time for news to travel in that day, not like it is today where you know yesterday what's happening today. <laughs> That's about how fast news travels in our particular day. But that wasn't the case. But when the Philippians found out about his situation, they immediately collected an offering. They sent Epaphroditus to deliver that offering 
and Epaphroditus walked into the door of that house where he was imprisoned in order to care for Paul and his needs as he came from the Philippian church. And Paul then sat down to write or probably dictate, because remember he was chained to a palace guard, this epistle, which is an epistle of thanksgiving to them for their love and their support to him. And we see that in how this begins with verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And he says this, and then he almost immediately qualifies or clarifies what he he said. He doesn't want them to think that, well, you were concerned for me when I was in Macedonia, but then you forgot all about me, uh, but now you're concerned for me again. He knows that that's not the case. The only reason they didn't come to his aid earlier is they didn't know about his situation. And so he adds, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You were concerned for me, but you didn't know what was happening, and so you couldn't rise up to meet my need. But as soon as you did, as soon as you learned, you did precisely that. And he's going to come back and pick up that theme a little bit later. But here's where we see something remarkable in the Apostle Paul. And we've seen it throughout the epistle, because this undergirds all of the epistle. Paul doesn't see his circumstance the same way most people see his circumstance or even their own, where they find themselves when there's trouble. Paul doesn't see himself being in need. He doesn't see that. Look at what he says as he goes forward. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. Paul looks at his situation not in terms of how is this impacting me. But remember the first of the epistle in chapter 1. His first question is not how does my imprisonment affect me? What's going to happen to me? But his overriding concern is how has what's happened to me impacted the spread of the gospel, the spread of the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel? That's his overriding concern. And what he saw happening was this. In God's providence, he's under house arrest, but he can have visitors. And the visitors are coming in to see him, and he's preaching the gospel, and they see Paul, even in his bonds, is bold in preaching, so why can't we be bold in preaching the gospel in the streets in our liberty? And so because Paul is bold in prison, they're emboldened in the streets, and the gospel's being preached. And even beyond that, Paul recognizes that some of those who are preaching are preaching for goodwill. They're preaching because they're burdened to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are others who have impure motives in preaching the gospel. But Paul doesn't even concern himself so much with that. He says, all that matters is they're preaching the gospel, even, no matter what their motives are, because he believes in the power of the gospel. And Paul sees himself enchained, but the gospel is at liberty to spread. It's not Enchained. And that's what matters most to him. And when he sees his life in God's providence and in God's 
sovereign care for him for the sake of the glory of God and the preaching of the gospel, but knowing that God loves him and will take care of him as well, Paul can say, I'm content while sitting in prison. I'm content while sitting in prison. Now, can you say that about your circumstances? About troubles that come your way, about tribulation, about persecution, about sickness, about death that you didn't know was going to happen in, in your family. All of the tribulation, the difficulties that we face because we live in a fallen world around us. Can we look at our circumstance and say, I'm content in the provision of God because it's for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. You see what Paul is accenting in his heart and mind? It's not his particular need or circumstance. I'm sure that the chain doesn't feel good on his arm. If he had his druthers, (laughs) I'm sure he would be free to preach in the streets. But that's not God's providence to him at this point. He's learned to be content no matter what his situation is. This tells us something about contentedness. In Sunday school, we were looking at in the English Reformation and in, in, in King Henry VIII and, and all that was going on in his life and all that was going on and how that spilled over in the church and these things. And one of the things that we talked about afterwards is yeah, how do we see ourselves in the light of what's happening in our culture around us? We see it collapsing before our very eyes. And sometimes we become hand-wringers. We're so desperate. What's going to happen? Instead of looking to a sovereign God who has his purposes, who's working it out for his glory. We pray for reformation and revival. Are we going to be shocked if God brings reformation and revival to our land? One of the things we see in church history is that when there is an intensification of persecution and tribulation against the church, guess what? Rather than putting out the fire, it flames the fire of revival. Why should we not expect the same thing in our day as we've seen cultural shifts that have seemed to happen rapidly before our eyes? The foundation's been being laid for a long time for the revolution that we're seeing in our day. But God remains sovereign. Are we content or are we anxious In our last text, Paul says, don't be anxious. Are we content or are we anxious? Paul has learned to be content. He says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low. Boy, he does. How many times was he imprisoned? How many times was he beaten? He was even taken outside the city and stoned and left to die. And the Lord revives him. What does he do? He gets up, he goes back to the city and preaches some more. He's been shipwrecked. If if you think about the persecution that's come to the Apostle Paul, he knows what it is to be brought low. He also knows what it is to abound in those times when it seems as if the the gospel is going forth unrestricted. The church is growing. He has plenty. He says, in any and every circumstance, I learned the secret 
of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Whichever one or anything in between. I've learned the secret. Now, this is not a secret that you whisper and say, okay, here's the secret. Don't tell anybody. It's not that kind of a secret. No, it's something that he has learned in his own walk with Christ. And that is this. When your eyes are heavenward, when you're seeking first the kingdom of God in his righteousness, when you're relying upon, well, he will add all other things to me, as Jesus said, When you're walking and living that way, you have learned the secret of the contented life. And it's not found in some Eastern mystical sort of navel-gazing. No, it's found in resting in God's providence, not only in your life, but God's providence in history to the end of His glory is seen and manifest in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has this heavenward view he has this long view he sees that God is at work he knows that God will fulfill his purposes and plans and sometimes along the way in his own circumstances in God's providence he's hungry and sometimes he has plenty to eat Sometimes he has a place to stay, a house, a rented house, where he can actually teach the Word of God. Other times he has a place to stay, a rented house, but he's chained to a palace guard. But he still has an opportunity to to preach the Word of God. (coughs) No matter the circumstance, when you have this heavenward perspective in view, the result of that is contentedness, because it's for God's glory And it's also for our good. And Paul recognizes that. And then he ends this paragraph with this statement, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I don't know of a verse more taken out of context and misquoted than that particular verse. People want to wear it on their chest like they're Superman. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This kind of thing. No, put it in its context. Here Paul is in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of I don't know what's going to happen, in the midst of imprisonment, for he's not at liberty to go and come. These are the circumstances he's in, and yet he is content. Why? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is, bear up in the midst of this providence because God has purposes I can't see, and that's okay. It's not the Superman verse that a lot of people do, jerking this verse out of its context. But it's how we live in this life, trusting in God, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who strengthens us in every situation that we face, because it's for his glory and it's for our good. And then we turn to the last full paragraph of the epistle before his final greetings, which are are brief in this particular epistles, in this particular epistle. And what he does is he comes back to the thought that he started before in terms of thanking them for what they have done for him. Look at verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. He calls it trouble. He's been saying all along, I'm not in need. I don't know everybody thinks I'm in need. 
the gospel's going forth. But he knows it's trouble. Life is trouble. <laughs> Let's just face it. It is. And the church militant life is trouble for the church and for the individual Christian. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in the midst of the trouble, and therefore I'm content. This is the point that Paul is making. But he does call it trouble here. And here's the beautiful thing is, it's kind of the Philippians to share in his trouble, and this is what we do in the church, isn't it? When someone's in trouble and it's apparent to all, what do we do? We share in that trouble. We come alongside of them. We seek to meet their needs. Whether it's our brothers and sisters in Christ who are, are fleeing the Ukraine and the refugee situation, there's an opportunity now through the Orthodox Presbyterian Church to make an offering in order to try and help and assist thousands and thousands of brothers and sisters in Christ who are in deep trouble in the circumstance with this war that's taking place as they flee. And, and what, our, what our General Assembly and Foreign Missions recognizes is this. People want to give. They need to be confident that their dollars are going to go and help the situation because there's thousands of different ways in which you can give and a lot of that money is not going to go to meet the need that's out there. Scams pop up whenever there's a crisis that's like this. But you can have confidence if you have a burden to help your brothers and sisters in Christ. You write the check here. It is going to go to meet that particular need. The OPC will not raise near as much money as a lot of charitable organizations will in the midst of this crisis. But you can trust that check when you write it. And they're making that provision for you so that, so that you can. We come alongside of each other in the local church and beyond the local church as well. I've seen this oftentimes within our presbytery. I don't know that I've told you this story before, but several years ago, <clears throat> a tornado came through southwest Virginia. And, and Pete grew up there, he, and he knows that the tornadoes and stuff usually don't hit too hard up there because the mountains kind of break up those systems as they're coming through. The weathermen had never seen a system like this one as it came through. And uh, it, it almost flattened a, a community I used to live in. And I got up early the next morning and drove to see what was going on. And the police wouldn't even let me in. There's so many down trees, and I could see one of the elders' houses, and there was the roof was gone from his house. I did learn that they were okay. The air conditioner, as the tornado hit, came through, and glass sprayed all over their bed <laughs> as, it, as it hit their house. But they were unharmed. It was there. They had lost their insurance. It's a long story when that happened. The family started one of the daughters starts saying, we need to contact the government. We need to contact FEMA. I said, God's going to put a roof on your dad's house. You don't have to contact FEMA. Of course, FEMA didn't come. We weren't big enough to get FEMA, FEMA help anyway in, in our particular area. <clears throat> we had just a few hundred dollars maybe in the diaconal account at the church there in Chilhowee, Virginia. Somehow the news got out. There wasn't even a request 
Checks started coming. In two weeks, they had to write and say, stop sending money. And God put a roof on his house. God put a roof over their head through the giving of those within the presbytery. Unsolicited. They just heard and diaconal deacons and boards of deacons started sending checks. They'd say, stop, stop. I've seen this kind of thing happening. And I'm not tooting the horn of the OPC. Other churches are very well in responding as well to need. But this is what Paul is talking about here. And he is he's giving thanks to the Philippians because this is what they've done. But he's not surprised. He's not surprised that they would do this. Look at how the text goes on. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, that is, in the beginning when I brought the gospel to Macedonia. Remember the first place he preached in Macedonia? The first place he preached on the continent of Europe? It was in Philippi. And then, of course, he was imprisoned and he was asked to leave there. He goes to Berea. He finds some believers who seek out the scriptures in Berea. Then he goes to Thessalonica. What happens? He gets in trouble again in Thessalonica. All this happened in Macedonia. From when I brought the gospel, this is what he means, the beginning of the gospel. When I brought the gospel to you first, from that time, when I left Macedonia to go to Achaia in southern Greece, Macedonia is in northern Greece, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Even before he left Macedonia, this was a giving church. This is the kind of church you want to emulate. There are other churches I would not say name your church after that church because of the problems that were in those particular churches. But Philippi, if Paul says in this epistle, which he does on a number of occasions, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We've seen that as we've come through this epistle. And I don't want to fall into just bare moralism of be like. We've warned against that approach to Scripture. But if Paul's telling us that about himself, imitate me, and as he says to the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ, I'm going to say to you, Let's set the pattern you see in Philippi before us in this congregation. If you want to be like a church in the Bible, you be like the Philippian church. Not that it didn't have problems. We've already seen Phoebe and Syntyche and their problems that they have with each other. Every church has its problems. But this is a mission-minded church from the get-go. Paul's two towns over and in trouble. They're already sending money and aid, whatever they can do to assist them. He leaves to complete his missionary journey. They are sending money to help him. And I want to challenge you as a congregation. See, we're a mission work. That's what we're called. And sometimes we could get the mindset, well, we're the mission. And everybody's to help us because we're the mission. No, you're missionaries. I want you to understand that. You are missionaries even now. In the establishing of this church that's here, you need to have as a mindset more than what's going on here. Send us money so that we can call a minister. Well, guess what? 
the OPC is going to send plenty of money to help us call a minister. Big dollars to help us call a minister. This is how we come alongside of each other. But you need to be thinking outside of yourself already at the mission status. So when a special offering comes, like this offering for refugees, this diaconal need, you need to be ready to respond to that. Later, when Paul is dealing with the church at Corinth, he uses the churches in Macedonia to provoke them to jealousy because the churches in Macedonia are giving beyond their ability to give, even though they don't have to, and even though he doesn't encourage them to. And I guarantee you, he's talking predominantly about the church at Philippi. The church at the mission status, they did it from day one. When the gospel began, they're already mission-minded. We need to be mission-minded here from day one, praying for other mission works, praying for other churches within our prayer. We do these things. We do it routinely. And I want to encourage that all the more. One other thing that I would tell you is this. I want you to think towards the thank offering. You might say, well, we're just getting into the spring. The thank offering's in the fall. You can already start thinking about it. You can already start setting dollars aside. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is a pretty good percentage. I think like 25% of what comes in all year long for the General Assembly, for its committees, foreign missions, home missions, and, and Christian education to the OPC comes in that one thank offering around Thanksgiving every year in November. It is a significant amount of dollars that comes in at that offering. This is a way for you to think beyond yourself, to think about helping to plant other churches, sending more and and making provision for our foreign missionaries that are already on the field, equipping the education ministry of the church through the thank offering. This is the way the Philippians functioned without even having all of the bells and whistles that we have in terms of how you give. They just spontaneously did it. And it followed Paul and his ministry and made provision for him and his ministry. You need to think about these things. Think beyond what God is doing here. There are people thinking and praying for you all over the church, all over the church. And we need to do that kind of thing. One more story of something that happened several years ago. <clears throat> Ross Graham was the general secretary of, of the Committee on Home Missions and Church Extension for 25 years, probably. Um, he was, had, was recently general secretary when I came into the OPC in 1994. I think he'd been there two or three years before that. Ross taught me a lot. And one of the things that he taught was, was in what happened one particular year. As we were approaching our November regional church conference where we divide up the denominational pie of dollars, where all the presbyteries come, we need this much for this one. We need this much for Yorktown. We need this much for this. We go around the table to divide the, up, up these dollars. It's really, it's really an interesting thing that takes place every year. And this particular year, I can't remember the exact year it was, but over 10 years ago, 
the money wasn't coming in through the regular askings, the contributions of the congregations, the contributions to the General Assembly. It was not coming in, and there was no explanation in terms of what was happening in the economy in general. They tried to see what's going on here. Are, are some of our larger churches struggling? They couldn't find any rhyme or reason of it. It became so perilously close to being to running out of money. It, see, every summer in the OPC, we spend what's been taken in by the summer. There are reserves that are dipped into knowing those are going to be replenished in the thank offering and what comes in at the end of the year. Every year, we operate in faith. It came perilously close that year in August to not being able to write the checks so that church planners could be paid, so that missionaries could be paid. I mean, it came close. And we heard of this. And so we all come ready to tighten our belts and ask for less. All the, all the Presbyterians did. I did the same thing. We get there to this meeting. And what does Ross do? Ross says, I know what the situation is. We don't know what the Lord's doing here. But I'm going to put something before you to pray about. He says, I'm burdened that in the next few years we plant five new churches in these five metropolitan areas that don't have an OPC witness. And I'm burdened that we plant five mission works in inner cities in these five locations over the next few years. And somebody says, how are we going to pay for that? In the, where's that in the budget? He said, it's not in the budget. Well, how are we going to pay for it? He said, the Lord's going to do it. <laughs> That's just what he said. He said, don't worry about the money. If I've heard it once, I've heard it ten times for this man sitting right here. I don't worry about the money in terms of what the Lord is doing. He will make provision. And Ross, I'll never forget, he said, look, if I have to believe God for every one of you, I'm going to do it. And guess what? Over the next few years, churches were planted in all five of those cities, and some of those inner cities now have inner city works as well. It was nothing in the budget at a low time in terms of the income. But that doesn't mean God's hands are tied in order to bless his church. Don't worry about the money. And I know that's hard for treasures to hear. <laughs> Don't worry. The Lord will make that provision. And he did for the Apostle Paul, and he did it for the church at Philippi. And this is not something new. It happened from the very beginning. They had the mindset when they were a brand new congregation. Be like the Philippian church in thinking about the greater mission of the church. Besides that, the thank offering helps pay my salary, and that's pretty important. <laughs> it will also help pay our organizing pastor's salary when he comes here as well. But here's the thing that's so extraordinary about this. Paul's thanking them that they hear of his trouble, and he calls it that, that they come to his aid. He's not surprised. You can almost imagine he's sitting there, Epaphroditus walks in the door. He probably said, it's about time. I've been expecting you. <laughs> because he knew that once they learned, they would respond to him. But it's still not about him. It's about them. 
That's what's so extraordinary about this text. I'm going to sound like a televangelist for a minute, but I'm not. (laughs) Okay? I'm not. They turn it upside down on its head. You know, you give and God will give to you. So if you want to get from God, you give. The whole motive then is your own selfishness to get by buying this line, if I give, I'll get. No, that's not what we're talking about here. But what we're talking about here is it's a blessing to give and God will provide for you. It's a blessing to give. Look at what he says, verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He's already said, look, I'm content whether the gift comes or not. The Lord's taking care of me, even if I'm hungry. The Lord's taking care of me, even if I'm beheaded. (laughs) I'm concerned about the gospel. But I'm also concerned that I want to see an opportunity for God to bless you. And when you give, God blesses you. That's what he's saying. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. Yes, this has blessed me. But I'm more excited about what this is doing for you. Your ability to give. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. We should be most joyful when Micah passes the plate. I'm serious. Would you sit down to write that check for the refugee ministry? Would you sit down to write your tithe check? It's a blessing for you to do it, even if you receive nothing in terms of material, a material response although oftentimes God does. It's a blessing to give. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians that God loves a cheerful giver. When you write that check, there should be a little... I'm left-handed, though. With joy. Now, you write it to the electric company or something like that. I don't care if you... (laughs) Or some bill... But you're writing that check for the ministry of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it the first or the last one you write when you're writing out your bills? It's for you. And it's a fragrant offering. It's a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And and then look what he says. And, And by the way. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in in, in Christ Jesus. You you can't outgive the Lord. (laughs) He is going to supply your need. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. And though this is not Stewardship Sunday, some churches have Stewardship Sunday when the pastor preaches on tithing. No, it's here in the text the joy of giving and the provision of God in the ministry and his provision to you. All of it is in this text. He will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And God doesn't run out of riches. We sing a song, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Remember that one? We need to realize this is true. 
in our lives, but also in in our supporting the ministry and the mission of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing that 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 I rejoice in. There are many things to say about the weaknesses of our church, the OPC. But if you look at the per capita giving to the mission of the church at the local level and at the Presbyterian denominational level, it's staggering. It's staggering. There's the evidence of the spirit of the Philippians live in our little church. Thing is, the same thing is true here. Strong stewardship in this church. The Lord has blessed the church to ready us in order to be able to call a pastor. The Lord will supply every need of yours as well as every need of the ministry of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul ends this with a doxology. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's where his heart has been from the beginning. The glory of God in the midst of his circumstances. And he sees that God is being glorified. And therefore he sings a doxology as he comes to the end of this epistle. And one of the things we do after we divide up the denominational pie at that conference is... When all is said and done, the dust is settled, and we know how much they're putting in the budget for our presbytery and all the other presbyteries, then we stand up and we sing the doxology. Even when there's been wrangling going on beforehand, it's fun banter back and forth. Your presbytery doesn't need that. Our presbytery needs that. The Lord supplies, and we stand up and we sing the doxology. Look at what the Lord has done as we anticipate moving forward next year in church planting. The God, our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. He ends the epistle, the epistle proper with the doxology. But then final greetings, and they're briefer, which seems as much as Paul knows the people in Philippi. um, And yet that's the case. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. They're typically named, or some of them are. They're not here. All the saints greet you. But then we have this one little detail, especially those of Caesar's household. You mean the gospel is so powerful, it's made its way into the very house of Caesar himself. We should not be surprised when we see reformation and revival take place. The gospel is that powerful. Could it be that a Roman guard heard the gospel, that that Roman guard had an acquaintance of someone who was a member in Nero's house, shared the good news with that person, and that person is converted, shares it with another, and there are secret Bible studies going on in Nero's house. Could that happen in the halls of Congress or the White House? Are we praying not only that our leaders would govern according to God's word, whether they're believers or not, are are we praying for their conversions? Are we praying for God to save those 
who are lost and who are rebels against God himself? Are we praying for their conversion? There are those converted in Caesar's own house. He was a despot. And then he ends with benediction. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You don't just get one today, you get two. You get two. Benediction. Remember the power of benediction. Remember when the minister raises his hands and pronounces benediction. Or even the beginning, like he begins his letter with salutation. It's a pronouncement of blessing. It's not the minister. It's Christ who stands behind the minister. And when that benediction is pronounced, when that blessing is pronounced, it flows from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to you. You receive that benediction and then live a benedictory life and the power of that gospel. Paul ends as we will end this service with benediction. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and for this epistle so much to teach us and this text so much to teach us as well. Father, forgive us when our eyes are too low, when we're consumed by, yes, even trouble when it assails us and it's all around us. And Lord, we know that you understand when we are overcome. But Lord Jesus, because you are triumphant, we pray that you would raise our eyes heavenward, that we would be consumed with a passion for your glory through the spread of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.